This is the recording made in the chapter of the open book and it is number two of a series, The Hope of Resurrection. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. So those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, would you switch off for a moment or two while we read the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to John. In this um, second study of the great subject of resurrection, I want to concentrate our attention this evening upon the historic evidence. Now there are some who speak rather scathingly of what they call historic faith, or head knowledge. But on the other hand, if it could be really proved that our Saviour was never born at Bethlehem, if it could be really proved that he never suffered under Pontius Pilate, then we are trusting in just a dream, a wonderful story, and that's the end of it. There can be no possibility of believing a Saviour who hasn't left behind some historic evidence. So we're not going to waste our time in arguing about that. We're going to search and see a little. Now, there have been attempts made on, in the days gone by by scholarly men to produce a harmony of the four Gospels, and they've never done it yet. I remember having a correspondence with a clergyman of the Church of England recently and I said to him, instead of spending all your time trying to make a harmony, why not spend the same time in considering and testing the things that differ? You'd learn so much more. For God alone could have made a harmony. Take for instance John. He wrote his gospel last of all. As far as we know, Matthew, he never saw Luke's gospel. And when John came along, Matthew and Luke and Mark, as far as we know, were dead. But John never went out of his way one inch to try to fit things together and make it all sound true. Do you know the reason why? Because it was true. The very fact that you cannot make a connected story, instead of it being against it, is an evidence that they never concocted it. They never agreed with one another what they should say. They put down what they saw and what they heard and what God enabled them to remember and the rest of it goes. We haven't got all the details, but we've got enough. And if you say, oh, we're not going to build on such slender evidence as that, well, you're building on it all day long. There are men's lives hanging, and I say the word hanging with two meanings, on evidence. You get accredited witnesses, you cannot find any reason that they should be doubted and that man's life may be forfeited because of what they say. I wonder how many here know in the sense of infallible personal knowledge that there is such a place as Australia. Will you stand up please? Well how do you know? How do you know? Well you say you're not going to tell me you don't believe there is such a place. No, I'm not one of those idiots who say there's no such need for us to have historic faith. I've met people who've come from there. I've had letters from there with stamps on them. I've got, oh, I know that it is there, but I've never been there. So please, whatever others may say about it, we must realise that unless our faith has an historic basis, it isn't a faith at all. And there is one thing to be said for those who constructed the creed, which is recited in the church, although we may not always feel we want to have a constructed creed. They dare to put in it, suffered under Pontius Pilate. They dare to put that in. Well, that takes you right back to one period in Roman history, one few years, and if that could be disproved, well, in the end, come to our faith, you see. 
There's so many others coming to the story. There's Festus and Felix and Agrippa. They're all listening to the Apostle Paul speaking about the resurrection. They're all passing their opinions about it. They're telling him he's mad and he's best to one of them. He says, why should you think it is incredible that God should raise the dead? Oh, they didn't swallow it. They didn't believe it. Now think of this chapter we've had before us, chapter 20. Here we have these people. They're looking in and they're looking at one another and they say, but he's gone. They never once said, well, this is a proof the Lord is risen. Now, if this was a concocted story, we should immediately found Peter giving John a lecture or vice versa, here's the proof of the risen Christ. They're both baffled. They're looking at one another and saying, but look, there's the linen clothes. How, I can't make it out. And while they're puzzling that, we have another one. And she looks in and she says, oh, if you've taken away my Lord, just show me. Not one of them said, He's risen from the dead. And it slips in, John slips in, they knew not the scripture that he should be raised the third day. But if you remember, and perhaps we'll wet our memory, uh, that uh, in the 24th chapter of Luke, the 24th chapter of Luke, when our Saviour is reported to have joined a couple who were walking on the way to Emmaus, their eyes were holden that they should not know him, and he asked them, oh, what was their trouble? And they said, Are you only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which have come to pass there these days? And then they told him about someone that was named Jesus of Nazareth, and they, they believed that he had been sent to be the Redeemer of Israel, verse 21. And then listen to this, and beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. They even say the words, the third day leaves no mark. Don't you see, a fabrication hardly puts its dunderheads in as that as believers in Christ and say, well, what's, what's the matter with them? But how human it is, isn't it? There they're looking in and they can't make it out. They're talking to one another. They say, somebody's come and stole the body. And not one of them ever said to the other, this is a proof that he's been, he's been raised from the dead. They had to be told that. Here's Thomas. He makes the statement, oh, he said, I couldn't believe such a story as that unless I see the wounds. We're very glad he did because of his collapse at the finish and the way he went further than any of them. So please, don't attempt. Don't attempt to improve the word of God. Take each record as it comes. There's this about it that if two or three of the friends in this meeting this evening went home and wrote a very honest report about it, they wouldn't agree. There'll be some things that will be said that you couldn't fit in with something else simply because I'm so strange that I say so many odd things together that you would never believe the same person would have said them. You see? One picks out all the nice bits, one picks out all the nasty bits and you get a conflicting argument but it'll all be genuinely true. And I feel that the very fact that there's no attempt to harmonise them makes them more evidently Witnesses giving their own personal testimony. And then John says, you know, if all the things were written to prove this, we said the world wouldn't contain the books. So he knew that they were making selections all the time. The scripture uses the anchor as a figure, doesn't it, of hope. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Now, I'm not much of a sailor, except that I can stand the sea all right. Uh, I used to use the word spinnaker, but I, I use it a bit gently now because I'm not quite sure what it means. 
But I do know that an anchor doesn't dangle over the side of the ship. It's useless, in fact it's a nuisance if he doesn't go down and get a grip. Now the anchor is the hope and the grip is the historic fact beneath it. It's bedded deep. So let's see that the ground in which our anchor can hold, shall we? With a few references through the scriptures to the historic fact beneath the glorious doctrine. Um, these friends are quoted the verse 21. And then again in verse 7 and 8 of the same chapter. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And the third day rise again. It says, then they remembered, then they remembered what he had said. It comes back to them. The third day, and they remembered his word. I don't know whether you've ever been like this, friends. Have you ever been told by someone very near and dear to you, you haven't heard a word I said? Have you? Well, they're like that, friends. So if we're not like any of the disciples in any other way, we are a bit like it there. He could actually say to them, and the third day, he could actually refer to Jonah and the great fish, left no mark upon them. Don't you see, friends, the more we analyse this, the more impossible it seems that anyone would ever have invented the story of the resurrection, for they never even dreamed of it. It didn't mean anything to them. It, they had to be convinced by his personal presence among them before ever the scripture began to form its own testimony. We have scripture testimony. They had the personal Christ that they knew. And isn't it lovely to know that the very tone of his voice was not changed for when he said Mary in that half dark of the morning she turned and looked at me and she says Rabboni, my master and so we get this strong thought that this book is not a fabrication now <clears throat> his foes if you'll turn to the uh, Matthew 27 they seem to have a keener memory than some of his disciples Matthew 27 verse 63. This is to do with his trial, you remember. Verse 62. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, <coughs> saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, <clears throat> You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. I think there was a little dig in those words, friends. I think Pilate had come to the conclusion that he was desperately wrong in what he had done but he was driven by a guilty conscience and couldn't help himself. And when they started all over again on this, he said, you've got your watch, you've got your Roman guard, make it as sure as you can. And I think he meant to say, and you won't be able to do it. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting the watch. And then the most idiotic thing of all is that they circulated a rumour that the Roman guard had slept 
Now, if you could only transport yourself back into the days when those words were said, you'd know that would mean suicide. You remember the the guard in the the uh, warder of the prison when he thought the gates being opened, he'd lost his prisoners. He took his sword. He was going to commit suicide. That was the end of that man. And says they were simply uh, something they connived between themselves, the Romans and the Pharisees. Let's circulate that rumor. But you see. It won't wash, will it? It won't stand the test. If you will go back now to uh, John, the sec- or turn to John, the second chapter, you'll see that another feature was remembered which the disciples forgot. John 2, second chapter of John. You know, our Lord had entered the temple and seen the money changes sitting there, and he drove them out and overturned their tables and said, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house have eaten me up. So they could remember some scriptures, you see. Isn't it strange? They remembered that. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, that was an enigmatic statement, wasn't it? Then said the Jews, forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Now, if you look at Matthew 26, verse 61, 26, 61, it says, the chief priests, they called false witnesses, verse 60, and found none. They sought them and found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Oh, that was enough. They got something at last. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it? which these witness against thee. But Jesus held his peace. There comes a time when it's no good arguing with anybody, is it? There's a time to speak as well as a time to be silent. And the scripture definitely said that that would be the condition of his trial. As a a sheep before a shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Only when the high priest adjured him by the living God, that was according to Talmudic literature, that if you were adjured to make a statement, you were compelled to speak. So he said, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God, and then the Saviour answered. He said, Thou hast said. And quoted from the book of Daniel, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And said, The priest rent his clothes and said, This is blasphemy. What further is there any need for witnesses? Don't let all the crowd of witnesses in. We don't want to hear them. They hadn't got any, but there it was. That was enough, you see. But don't you see? Strange, isn't it? The fickleness of memory. That they could remember the Lord saying that, and the disciples heard him, and it seemed to go in one ear and out the other. Makes me remember, in the beginning of my Christian service, I attended a meeting place in Ilford, and I wondered what this the man was doing with his children. They were all sitting around him in a little group, and he, they went, Put one finger on one ear like that. Just a little bit of ritual. I thought, what's this going on? 
Well, we said we always do that so that it doesn't go in one ear and out the other. A word for us all. We needn't go through the ritual, but oh, how many times that fleeting, fickle memory of ours. And here it was. They could hear, they could listen to his voice, they could see his work, see him in person, they could hear him quoting scripture, referring to Old Testament types. Left no impression on them. And the more we say that, the more obvious it is that the resurrection must have been a fact because none of them seemed to be working up to it or thinking it must be or arranging their gospel that it should be. They're telling you in the gospel that none of them believed it. None of them seemed to have heard about it. They were all staggered at them till we find it was true. So we'll pursue this a little bit further. Suppose we look now at Matthew 17. Matthew 17. <coughs> this is the transfiguration. Uh, this is where they heard the voice from heaven this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And in verse 9, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. So he told them. But it was a prohibition. And I suppose the words slipped through their mind. It didn't mean anything definite. And in verse 22, and while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. <laughs> you see, they were exceeding sorry. They, were, they, they heard the sorrowful bit. He shall be betrayed, or they were sorry. They shall kill him, they were sorry. And the third day he shall be raised again, Left no mark. Left no mark. We've become psychologists and we've got much more. What's the matter with the human mind? What's the matter with the minds that can listen to these words and have them spoken to them and yet leave no mark? Perhaps it's a comfort to us because when we speak to some people it seems to be the same, doesn't it? We're, step, we're following in, in the steps of the great teacher in that sense. And in the chapter 20 of the Gospel of Matthew, we're gathering together some of these. Chapter 20, verse 17, And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Now, he's taking them apart, so that they won't be tangled up by a crowd, and only half hear what he says. Behold, he said, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed in, un, unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, and to scourge, and to crucify him. He got it all there, you see, step by step. And the third day he shall rise again. So, you see, it was continually being brought to their notice, increasing in its detail, but apparently left no mark. Will you turn to the 22nd chapter of Matthew? Verse 30. This is in answer to a question. There were those who were tempting the Lord, you know. Uh, they said, um, is it 
lawful to give tribute to Caesar. But he knew it wasn't the personal question that was asking, but they were trying to trap him. So he just said, show me a penny. They showed it to him. He says, whose image and superscription is this? Oh, Caesar's. And he says, you render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and the God the things which are God's. And I thought, hmm, that's done us, isn't it? That's what he intended. So they thought, well, have another try. So they said, Master, Master, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed to his brother. Now they give this story of seven men, seven brethren, one after the other. Now they said, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, you do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So it settled that one question. So you do all your marrying and love making and what down here, but this is the only chance you'll get. There'll be glories beyond your dreams in the day to come. But here it is that doesn't get transferred to the glory. Oh, we shall miss it, friends. We'll have other things to make up for it. But he says here, but, now wait a minute, you've been speaking about the resurrection. As touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He said, don't you realize that by God saying that when those men were dead, that he was the God of resurrection? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, here's a text that has suffered by somebody picking it out and proving that when a person's dead, he's more living than ever. But this is as touching the resurrection. That's the introductory words. And if you leave those out, well, you could make the scriptures mean anything. So we go on again. That was 22. Now, if you go back to uh, chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, they're still in the same gospel according to Matthew. I hope we should get out of it to somewhere else, but there's such a team of witness. Chapter 10, 17. Um, just wait a minute, I don't know whether I'm quite right over this. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you in the synagogues. No, I don't think that's the right one. I've got some reason for that which I can't fathom. And look at 11.25. 11.25. At that time, Jesus answered and said unto them, I thank thee, O Lord of heaven and earth. Oh, I see what I've done, friends. I've not rightly divided my subject. I'll repent and we'll go to the gospel according to John. <coughs> I would do things like that, wouldn't I, with these wheels going round to show me up throughout the length and breadth of the land? Yes. Chapter 5 of John's Gospel. Chapter 5 of John's Gospel. Verse 21. Some of the claims of our Saviour here. Very wonderful. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. What a statement. And then in 25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And then verse 28, Marvel not at this, 
For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear the, his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. They that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation or judgment. So an emphasis upon the resurrection associated with himself. And then the 10th chapter, which of course I mixed up with Matthew just now. The 10th chapter, verses 17 and 18. is a very wonderful statement here with regard to the resurrection. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. I lay it down. No man taketh it from me. Never interpret the crucifixion as though if wicked hands had never crucified the Son of God, he would never have offered himself. That was an added insult and an exhibition of the hatred of the world. But when that moment came, he was enveloped in darkness that no one could penetrate over the earth for so long a time and in that darkness the transaction took place that he came to do. He offered himself without spot to God through the eternal spirit. It didn't need the crucifixion and the nails and the brutality for him to do the work that he came to do. So here we have light on that. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power or authority to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. That again, you see, was a challenging statement for them to ponder. And then chapter 11 brings us to the climax, doesn't it? Martha and Mary have both been waiting for him. The extraordinary thing is that it says he loved these sisters and their brother. And when they sent a message to him saying, Lord, he who thou lovest is sick, the very first thing we should have done would have dropped everything and gone streaking to Bethany. The scripture says, he, because he heard that, he waited two more days. This is for some of the mysteries we have to meet in life. He says, this sickness is not unto death. Would you say he died? Oh, yes. This, the object isn't that he shall die, but that the name that the Son of God shall be glorified. This is for the glory of God. So that man goes down to death. And, and our Saviour waits two, year, two, two days. And the two sisters are mourning and can't understand it. This is another subject which we must touch upon with more care another time. But at last, he gets there. And he's met by Martha. And she says in verse 21, Martha said, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And then you see again in the end of verse 32, Mary said, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Oh, this was genuine, wasn't it? They were saying, oh, why doesn't he come? Can't we enter into it? And then he said to her, oh, she said, added to that a little piece on her own. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. See? So the Lord looked at her. And he said, thy brother shall rise again. And then she seems to have made a little gasp and drawn back and said, oh, yes, I know he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, there was a little challenge, wasn't there? But even now, now I know that whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, he'll give it to thee. 
I'd rather she'll rise again. Well, that wasn't referring to the last day. That's even now, if you will ask. And then she thought, oh, have I said too much? And Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. Who would have claimed for any man to make on earth? And to make it in a graveyard with a tomb sealed and a man inside who's been dead four days. I am the resurrection and the life. What a challenge. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever is living, pointing to the second coming, and whosoever is living and believing in me shall never die. Believest thou this? A challenge again. And she said, Yes, Lord. I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world, as though that answered the whole thing. And then, he proved that what he said in John 5 was a literal fact. That a dead person could hear his voice, because you might say, well, how could a person hear your voice? If he's dead, but he said, won't hear your voice. Oh, true enough, but he hear mine. And here this Lazarus steps forth and hears, although he was dead. Don't think I can explain it, friends, it's a mystery. But nevertheless, it's written as an historic fact. Well, then we get further light on different phases of it. We've been looking at chapter 20. So, I go now to Luke 24, 34. Luke 24, 34. And you may remember that commenting on this same period, it speaks of our Saviour showing himself alive with many infallible proofs. The Acts of the Apostles doesn't start until the 16th verse. The first 15 verses are a resume of the last chapter of Luke. Luke wrote them both. And if you write a book or a letter with an interval in between, there's every likelihood, whatever you said at the finish, you'll just sum up quickly and go on. So he doesn't tell you what the proofs were in Acts. But in Luke 24, he tells you what one of them was. So shall we look? Luke 24. It says, um, verse 33, we'll pick, oh, verse 32, and they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were there, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and have appeared to Simon. And they, that, and they told what things were done in the way and how he was made known unto them in the breaking of the bread. And you're conscious that they wondered whether they believed it after all because it said when the others came it was like idle tales. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified. Now this is, this is the way the scripture describes them. Don't say, Oh Lord, this is a proof that thou hast been raised from the dead. They were terrified and affrighted. And suppose that they had seen a spirit or a phantom, as the word is. He said unto them, Why are ye troubled? Or why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet. It is I myself. 
Hand on me and see. So the others were given the opportunity that Thomas said he would demand. For the spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye have seen me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy, now we can understand that, can't we? This seems too good to be true. They're looking at one another. Can you believe it? He said to them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a an honeycomb. Now that doesn't mean to say that's a proper way to have your food. I don't even want to mix up fish and honeycomb somehow. But you see, there was a remnant of a meal. That's all they got left. What he said, doesn't matter what it is, just show, I want to show you I'm a living person. And he took it and he eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. And then goes through the Old Testament scriptures. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. And that little group who had run away and hid themselves, and some of them had gone back to their fishing, and said, it's all over, we have been deceived. That little group suddenly seemed to be electrified, and they withstood the mighty power of Rome. And priests and scribes and Romans and others began to believe this truth. And you've got to get some reason for the mighty change that took place. If they had smuggled away the body of Christ, they could never have stood. There, nobody would ever have believed like this and acted like this unless they had became convinced of its uh, personal and positive truth. There's one little piece here I would like to deal with for a moment. And that is, uh, it says, A spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye have seen me have. And I've heard some doctrine built on this, that the resurrection body of Christ had no blood in it, and some argument, oh, I don't know how it's going on in the future. But you see, friends, we want to be so careful, we don't reduce things to an absurdity. If a body has no blood, then it's useless to even eat fish or a honeycomb, because it's no earthly good to the body unless it has a bloodstream. And if you have no blood, You'd have no need for lungs and nostrils. By the time you've done, you've reduced the whole thing to an absurdity, haven't you? You see, we today say flesh and blood, don't we? But if you look in the Old Testament, they say flesh and bones. Shall I give you uh, an example? Right back in Genesis. I don't think even I can miss the passage here. I hope not. Chapter 2. Verse 23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He never said blood. You can't believe that Adam looked at his wife, a woman in all the beauty of her first creation, and said, You're a bit anemic. You see, flesh and bones was the ordinary way of speaking of a human being. We say flesh and blood. But that doesn't mean to say we've got no bones. I only mention that because a false doctrine has been built on this and even advocated and printed. 
What the resurrection body will be like, none of us know. We're waiting for further parts of this series of studies to consider that question. We are told we're going to have a body like unto his body of glory, and what that is like we don't know. But what we do know is the body that stood before them was the body that had been nailed to the cross and had this spear wound in the side. It was himself and not another. Whatever changes may take place when he was glorified, even as we will be glorified, but our identity will be the same. I mean, when we were talking about the problem about the seven men who said uh, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? We don't want to say in the resurrection which body you're going to have, because if you've lived about, what, seven years, you're supposed to have a completely new one every seven years, so which one? If you're going to be literal like that, you see. And we don't want to take things to such an extreme. Well now I think, for the next few minutes, we better move to the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, I don't know as we shall be able to cover all the testimony. We'll do our best in the next few minutes to show that these men who had been baptised by the Spirit of Truth on the day of Pentecost, they had no uncertainty with regard to the resurrection. Chapter 2 of the Acts of the Apostles, 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Now this is the testimony not only of a man of integrity, but a man who had just at that very day been baptized with the Spirit of Truth. And if speaking under the influence of the Spirit of Truth he can say that, what are we going to say about it? But if we deny that, we deny Pentecost, we deny the spirit of truth witness, and the whole fabric of our salvation rocks over. Let's take it a stage further. Chapter 3, 26. Chapter 3, 25. Ye are the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you. God having raised up his son Jesus. We come to chapter 4 of the Acts of the Apostles. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the, of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You can't stop these people now, you see. So they, have an, uh, they lay hold of them and they put them into prison and um, we are told being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead and they laid hands on them, put them in hold until the next day for it was now eventide. And then they are brought before the priests and they are given a warning that they must not preach in this, in this name. But uh, Peter says, if we this day be examined of a good deed to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole? Uh, verse 9, 
be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him do this man stand here before you all. He slips that in, you see. He had no need to, but he did. Whom God raised from the dead. And we could go on through these story in the Acts. Here's chapter 5, verse 28. Did we not straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree, him hath God exalted. And so you can go through chapter after chapter of this Acts of the Apostles with this testimony. Our Saviour's testimony, his own words, I haven't even touched upon his reference to the uh, type of Jonah, the three days, but I've shown how he insisted upon the third day to them, and at last they realised the scriptures were fulfilled. They didn't believe it, they looked at one another and couldn't quite make up their minds, and then, after Pentecost, prison couldn't stop them. Here they were witnessing, and in order to show that Peter was not the only one, we find in chapter 13, and I think here our time will be practically up, in chapter 13 Paul takes the same line of argument. 13.28 He's speaking of our Saviour, and though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulchre. Now we get one of those wonderful little bits, but God. What a difference that makes, doesn't it? They laid him in a sepulchre. Supposing that was all. Well, says 1 Corinthians 15, we shall be of all men most miserable. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. And so we could go on, filling our time out to exhaustion. Paul stands before Agrippa, and he says, but the hope of the resurrection of the dead am I called in question, unto which hope our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. Why should it be thought incredible with you that God should raise him from the dead? And so on and so on, right through four Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles. They are the historic books of the Bible. We naturally turn to the epistles for the great doctrinal development and teaching, we get the glorious gospel of salvation developed in the epistle to the Romans almost as nowhere else. But if there's no historic basis of the four gospels and the acts of the apostles, what a dream the apostle Paul had and how we've all been deceived, haven't we? But don't you see, even he couldn't go on like that when he wrote 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruit of them that slept. Well, that's where we want to get, isn't it? To be so sure, we've done our best this evening in the limited time to sketch out just a little of the way in which the historic evidence can be accumulated. 
and by the time I've given you wrong chapter and verse, and I've missed out any amount that I've got, well, the, the, the evidence there is enough to satisfy any reasonable person. The one great glorious fact is that he died for our sins, and he was raised again for or because of our justification. When we meet together next time, I think we shall have to spend our time not on history, but on a few outstanding words that need to be examined carefully because we can make confusion by sometimes uh, not giving heed to their etymology, their origin. So you're in for it again, friends, before we get to the part that will be perhaps more attractive. But I hope that the very nature of the subject, because it is so important, will justify a little bit of headache and uh, tediousness so that we don't miss these things which belong to our peace.